Well, hey everyone, Pastor Stephen here, and I want to thank you for checking out this message from Journey Church. I hope that it encourages you, challenges you, and brings you closer to Jesus than ever before. If you are joining us today online or through the live stream, we are so excited that you are with us. However, we are not meant to do life alone, so don't let online media be a substitute for an actual community of faith and fellowship. God created us to do life with one another so that we can grow together on life's journey. We hope that you enjoy this message from God's Word. Today is week two of our sermon series called In Game, pouring into this the second week in a row. And in this series, what the goal is, is to dive deep into scripture, into the word of God and understand exactly what the Bible says about the end times. Not what our interpretations are, not what our our preconceived ideas are, but exactly what does the word of God say that is going to happen in the end times. There is a lot lot of speculation with no biblical basis that is floating around in the world today. In fact, there's a lot of people who listen to a lot of podcasts and YouTube videos, who read a lot of books, who listen to a lot of the latest and the greatest conspiracy theories, but they have not looked at what the Bible actually says. And what you find when you look at what the Bible says is that many of those things are in contradiction to the things that are being publicized today. There's a lot of misinformation that is out there, and my goal through all of this is to get a real deep understanding of what the Bible says and how the Bible relates to our lives. For example, how many of you have heard things like this? In the end, there will be a one-world government. Can I get a show of hands of how many of you have heard that? How many of you have heard that in the end, there will be one-world currency that will take place? Did you know that neither of those things are in the Bible? Did you know that those are inferences made from the beast system that will happen, yet those things are not really found in the Bible? In fact, if you begin to look at what the Bible says, you will find that those things actually probably aren't going to happen. There will be a beastly system, but the beastly system will be focused most entirely in the Middle East, yet we will all be affected by that. But it doesn't say anywhere that that's what's going to happen. So we have to get a clear understanding of what the Bible says. Many of you have heard that the mark of the beast is going to be the vaccine that is going to happen. And I want to tell you that no, it's not. It is not going to be the vaccine. There are other reasons why you may want to consider not taking the vaccine because you're injecting yourself with things that may alter your DNA, but it's not the mark of the beast. We have to get some clear understanding because when get to that point and lay out what that actually is, you will realize that, whoa, wait a second, I was wrong in the ways that I was reading this. What we need more than anything is a baptism in the Bible to understand what the Bible says, not what we think it might say. It's actually reading it and knowing it and actually applying it to our lives. And so that's what we're going to do through this entire I don't know why my microphone keeps cutting out, but it's cutting out quite a bit. I may have to switch here in just a moment. Last week, we covered this message out of 1 Peter chapter 4, which says, now the end of all things is near. And what we began to look at was then, if that is the case, how should I live in light of the fact that the end of all things is near? How should that change my life? How should I be different as a result of that? Today, 
we are going to look at another really introductory kind of message because today we have to look at and understand what is the end game? What are the end times pointing to? What is God's ultimate conclusion of what the end game may be? I want to challenge you through the series to be aware to not be unprepared, to not have things take you off guard because you didn't know. I want you to know so that when you see the signs that are happening, according to the Bible, you will be able to know we are there and I am prepared in my heart to go through whatever it is that I'm going to have to go through. Imagine this analogy. If you were living in the 1920s and you were a young man or a young woman and you were living in Germany, or if you were in the 1920s, you were a young man or young woman living in Poland, and somebody had warned you about the events that were going to come in the 1930s with Hitler and the rise of his power, would that have caused you to live differently? Would that have caused you to warn people? Would that have caused you to be prepared in a way that everybody else wasn't prepared because they didn't see it coming and they didn't know that it was going to happen? The Bible gives us everything we need in order to be prepared and be ready. Today, though, we need to understand what is God's ultimate end game? What is he moving us toward? What is God's ultimate conclusion of all of this? Let's pray as we begin our message today. Father, we want to hear from you. I believe, Lord, you have an incredible truth in your word to share with us today. In fact, Lord, you organized and created all of this that we have before us. You, you organized and created your words so that we could know. But even this day, Lord, you organized the songs that we sang so that it would tie in exactly to the message that we have. Father, I believe this is on your heart. I believe this is your heart. And Lord, I pray that we would receive what you have in store for us as the end game. Lord, I pray for the other churches in our community that you would bless them, use them, and help them today as they are proclaiming and preaching your gospel. Father, be with us now by your Holy Spirit. Give us the ability to understand and to see and to know the events of the end. Father, we thank you for our time together. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, what is exactly the end game? What is God's end goal and his end game that he is ultimately trying to accomplish? It is laid out in the Bible. In fact, it is found in the most obscure of places in the Bible. It's found in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, which is a chapter that we normally associate with marriage. In fact, if you have been in a church service, maybe even here, where we have ever preached about marriage, this is the verses that come up. These are the verses that God always points to, uh, when, or people always point to when it comes to how to have a healthy marriage. It talks about wives, submit to your husbands. That's the verse that men like to quote the most, I think. Uh, husbands, love your wives. See to it that you respect your uh, husband and love your wife. That's the combination of the two. But in the middle of that, Paul gives us the prophecy that deals with the end times. He gives us the prophecy that deals with the end game that God is after. And let's look at this together. And then today, with these verses, I want to tell you a story that comes straight out of the Bible 
that gives you the picture of what God has been doing behind the scenes, what, why God is doing this. It gives you the picture of why Jesus came and what Jesus was ultimately trying to accomplish. And in many cases, he did accomplish with a certain group of people. Let's look at this together. I'm going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 32, or 50, uh, 25 through 32. Let's look at this together this morning. Here's what it says. It says, husbands, love your wives, just as Messiah also loved his community. Now, the word community has been substituted. I'm reading from what's called the TLV version. It's the Tree of Life version. It is my absolute favorite version. It is a version of the Bible that was put together by, by Jewish Christian scholars and, and Gentile Christian scholars, all highly educated, but they put it back together with the Jewishness that had already been taken out of it. He, they use the word community. The word community is in place of church because it's so confusing. The word community is the word ecclesia, and that just means the called out ones, the ones who are the assembly, the ones who are the community, the ones who have by faith put their faith in Jesus. When you accept Jesus, you become a part of his fellowship and his community. The church is not the physical structure. Everybody that comes to a church is not part of the community because there are people that come to church who have no intention of loving God, following God, being committed to God. They just attend. Maybe their spouse tells them they have to, or maybe they feel obligated to. The ones who become part of the community are the ones who have said, Jesus, yes, I want what you're offering. I need you in my life. I'm committed to you. I love you. I want to be your follower. That's part of the community. So he says, husbands, love your wives just as Messiah also loved his community. So he's saying, husbands, your relationship with your wife should be the same kind of relationship that Jesus has with his community of believers. Okay, you, you follow this so far. And Jesus gave himself up for her, who's her, his community, to make her holy. Having cleansed her by immersion in the word, Messiah did this so that he might present to himself his glorious community. So in other words, he's saying this, here's the reason Jesus did this, so that he could present to himself a glorious community. That's the ultimate goal. And then he says, not having this ultimate glorious community, not having stain or wrinkle or any such thing, but in order that she might be holy and blameless in the same way, meaning the same way that Christ has a relationship with his community, in the same way, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Messiah also does his community, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery... Notice that word, this secret, this mystery is great, 
But I am talking about Messiah and his community. What is, what is God doing? What is God going on? What is working behind the scenes? And the ultimate goal of God, the end game with God, is not the events of the final seven-year tribulation. The ultimate goal of God is to present to himself a community that is radiant, a community that is holy and blameless, a community that is glorious. This is the ultimate mystery that you leave father and mother and you become one flesh in the same way that it is with a husband and a wife. It's the same manner that we leave the world behind to become one with God. That is ultimately what God is doing behind the scenes. It is the ultimate picture of what the end game is. The ultimate picture is a marriage ceremony, a spiritual marriage covenant that is made between myself and God, between you and God, between the community, the believers of all time, of all generations, those who have put their faith in God, the community is joined to God ultimately in eternity. And everyone else who has not been part of the community, everyone else who has not entered into that covenant relationship are going to be left aside. The community of faith, the community of believers, this is the mystery that we become joined to God for eternity. This covenant relationship, this idea of a covenant is always something in the Bible that was something that was enduring. It was something that was permanent. It was something that was binding. And that's what God is ultimately doing. In Revelation 21.9, it says this, then came one of the seven angels holding the seven bowls full of the seven final plagues. And he spoke with me, that's John, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. See, that's the ultimate end game. The ultimate end game is the marriage between God and his community, between Jesus, Yeshua, and his bride that we become part of, that we enter into this relationship. This is what God is ultimately doing. This is the ultimate end game. The end game is not the events. The end game is making sure that his bride is ready, that you are qualified to be a part of the bride. And that when Jesus returns, he will collect his bride and there will be a covenant relationship that is made forever. Marriage is supposed to be binding. It's supposed to be enduring. It's supposed to be permanent. That's how God has designed the marriage relationship to be. And it's exactly how God is going to have a relationship with us in the end. Now, with that background in mind, I want to give you three things today from the Bible that are clear about this marriage kind of relationship. And I want to show you how it worked in that society and the metaphor that is being used, because the story behind this is outstanding. Look at, I'm going to show you these three things. I'm going to show you the calling. I want to show you the cleansing. And then I want to show you what's called the collecting. So those three things, that's my outline for today. The calling, the cleansing, and the collecting. And I want to tell you a story that goes along with this. So here's how the story goes. And we're going to start with the calling this morning. 
In Jewish culture, in the time of Jesus, the marriage ceremony was very important. It was one of the central events of the day. But marriage was very different than it is today. Today in our society, marriage has kind of lost its, its value. It's kind of lost its permanency. But in that day, marriage was highly important and highly sought after. And so what would happen very different from our dating relationships or courting relationships that we have today. In that day, what would happen is it would start this way. You'd have a young man. He would be in, maybe he's just going through the city in that day. He's maybe going to the marketplace. And as he is in the marketplace, he sees a girl that really catches his eye. And this girl is just, all of a sudden, it's love at first sight. There was a lot more love at first sight that happened in those days than happens in today's day. Love at first sight. And so he sees this girl in the marketplace, or maybe he has known the girl somewhat, but they, they don't date in that day. They, they may have social gatherings where there's a lot of chaperones around, but he sees this girl, he really likes the girl, he really wants to marry the girl. So here's what he does. He goes home to his father's house and he talks to his dad and he says, dad, I have found the one. I cannot wait. I want to marry this one. Now the father would not say, well, wait a second. You just saw her, you know, didn't, uh, didn't the movie Frozen address this issue of, of seeing somebody and wanting to marry them? You don't do that. No, he didn't do that. He said, okay, if this is the one, let's get the contract together and let's go talk to her father. So the son and the father would go together to this girl's home. They would sit across the table, and as they sat across the table, they would negotiate what was called the contract or the bride price. In that day, women were seen as not an asset, they were seen as a liability. Because what would happen in that day is the son would take the girl out of her father's home and she would live with him and his father. So if you had a daughter, you were losing out on somebody there being a part of your family. So they would negotiate a bride price. And the bride price would often be very high. I mean, it could be, you know, a number of camels. It could be a number of goats. It could be land that could possibly take place. It could be gold and silver. It could be, um, you know, it could be containers of food. Who knows what it was. But they would negotiate the bride price. When the bride price was finally finished, then, and it was agreed upon, then the father of the son would pour a glass of wine for his son. The son would take the glass of wine. He would slide it across the table to the girl. Now the girl had a choice. Take, take all the time you need. A, a minute, two minutes, whatever you're going to need. Take your time. Look at the contract. Decide in your mind, do I really want to accept this? If the girl said yes, I want to marry this guy. She would take the cup, she would drink the cup, she would pass it back to the guy across the table, he would then drink it, and now their relationship is sealed. They are now engaged, but it's more than engagement. In that culture, it was seen as permanent. We are bound together. We are connected. 
Well, now next thing that would happen is the son would stand up with his father. The son would say, I am going back to my father's house. I'm going to start working on a room for us. It's going to be an addition to our father's house, my father's house. I'm going to build a room. When the house is ready, when the room is ready, I am going to come back and collect you. Now, they may say, well, when is that going to be? When is that going to take place? I don't know when it's going to take place. Only my father knows. When my father says the room is ready, then I will come back and get you. Until then, you may not see me again, but when the room is ready, I am going to come back and get you. And trust me, every young man who proposed marriage would come back to collect his bride. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. He was excited to get back get the house done, come back and get his bride. Now, why was it up to the father to determine when the house was really ready or when the room was really ready? Well, that's because if it was up to the son, you know, a young male who wants to get married, he would throw up a couple of boards, a sheet across it and say, we're good, let's go. The father said, nah, uh uh no, no, no. It's gonna take some time. You need to learn some patience and you need to learn some craftsmanship And you're going to work until it's ready. And when it's ready, I will tell you. And then you can go and you can collect your bride. That's the whole picture of what it is to have marriage in that day. Now let's unwrap the mystery that Paul just said. It's a a mystery. This relationship between God and his community. The mystery is this that Jesus fulfilled everything that I just told you when he came to this world. Look what what these things say. First, he sees us. He wants a relationship with us. He desires that relationship. So he comes to this place in order to, to propose, in order to have a relationship. A price had to be paid Because a bride price always had to be paid. What was the price that Jesus paid? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 7, 23, you have been bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, you know that you were redeemed, you were bought, you were bought out. From the futile way of life handed down from your ancestors, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood like the blood of a lamb without defect or spot, the blood of Messiah. Jesus then offering himself as the payment proposed marriage. He did this in the upper room. When the disciples were celebrating Passover, right before Jesus would go to the cross, Jesus sat down with them at the Passover, at the Passover being almost finished. The third cup of wine out of four that was to be drunk was called the cup of redemption. And it says these familiar words, and maybe you're going to hear it in a different way this time. And Jesus took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. So picture this, he, he, he handed it to them the way that a groom hands to the bride. He gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the removal of sins. 
Well, that's the exact language that would be happening over a table when marriage is being proposed. The young man would push the cup aside over to his bride and say, this is the agreement. This is the covenant that I am making with you. I love you. I will be a faithful husband. Will you be my faithful wife? Jesus gives them the cup, says, this cup is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out from you. Now, you remember what would happen after they drank the cup, they would push it back to the groom. The groom would pick up the cup and drink it. And once he drank it, it was sealed. It was finished. It was done. But Jesus says this, I say to you, I will never drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until... Notice that word until. Those are hinge words in the Bible. Until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Why didn't Jesus drink it again right away? Because he left the covenant open to all people. Whoever says yes to Jesus, you're picking up the cup in a metaphorical way. You are drinking it. You are entering into covenant relationship with him. When he drinks of it, it's done. There's no more additions. It's open until that day, until the day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. And then what happened with Jesus? Well, he resurrected from the dead, but then he ascended into heaven. And what did he promise them and told them about that event? He said this, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places, many rooms, many insulas. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will certainly come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. What's the way? The way is you say yes to his proposal. Jesus says, will you enter into a covenant relationship with me? You say, yes, I will enter into a covenant relationship with you. I want a relationship with you. I want to have eternity with you. I say yes to what you're offering me. So Jesus says, great, jumps up from the table. I'm going to my father's house. I'm going to go to prepare a place. And when it's ready, I'm going to come back and I'm going to collect my bride. And I'm going to take my bride to be with me because that's the ultimate end game. Finding out who is worthy to be a part of the bride. The offer was made. The contract was sealed. As soon as you pick up the cup and accept it, as soon as you believe, repent, and receive him, you've accepted the contract. Jesus goes and prepares a place. Now, after he is gone, then what happens? Well, that is this cleansing that's going to be taking place, the cleansing. Now, think about this. Go back to the marriage analogy. While the son is away working on his father's house, in a literal sense, you know, you have this marriage relationship, this contract covenant that was entered into. He goes away. You may not see him again for a while. He is going to come back. Now you're a bride in waiting. You're a bride who is engaged. You are a bride who has a bridegroom that is coming. While the son is away, you are to act like an engaged bride. 
The Bible says this, that the, the uh, drinking of that cup makes, makes it so that you are promised, you are, you are set apart, you are consecrated, you are not your own. That's all language of a marriage. As the bridegroom is away, the bride keeps herself holy, pure, set apart, spotless, blameless. I mean, just think of this. If you were engaged and you found out that your fiance, which probably has happened to some of you in this room, but you found out that your fiance, while you're engaged, is being unfaithful, that they're turning away to other relationships, they're going back to old boyfriends or girlfriends, do you want to continue with them? No, maybe you're going to break off the engagement completely. Thankfully, God is not like that. Thankful we have a God who will forgive us, but we live in holiness because we are waiting and we are watching and we are anticipating that the bridegroom is going to return. And so the, the church is to be holy. Now, again, look back at what, what Paul said in Ephesians 5 with a fresh set of eyes. He says this, he says, husbands, love your wives in the same way that Messiah loved his bride, his community, his church. And he gave himself up for her. That's the bride price that was paid in order to make her holy, cleansed. Messiah did this so that he might present to himself his glorious community, not having stain or wrinkle or any such thing, but in order that she might be holy and blameless. The word, the word holy in the Greek language just means to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be purified, to be, to be, it's the opposite of common. Common was everyday utensils. The uncommon, the holy ones were the ones that were set apart for the feasts, for God's good purposes. And so the bridegroom goes away, you keep yourself holy. Jesus goes away, you want to be holy because you're waiting and anticipating and looking for the return of the bridegroom. These kind of scriptures, these kind of ideas are all throughout the Bible. This is God's ultimate end game to create a bride set apart, holy, anticipating, glorious, waiting on his return. In Ezekiel chapter 16, God said these words. And this, is, again, is the same metaphor, the same imagery. He says again, and this is God speaking. Again, I passed by and I saw you. And behold, you were truly at the time of love. That's the same thing as seeing them in the marketplace. I, I saw you. I passed by. I, I recognized you and I wanted you. Here's the problem. You're filthy and you're dirty and you're a mess. But God says, I don't care. Because he says, I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. I swore to you and I entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord Adonai. So you became mine. Then I washed you with water. I rinsed off your blood from you and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidery. I, I put sandals of fine leather on you. In other words, God blesses extravagantly his bride. I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your hands and necklace on your neck. I put a ring in your nose. There, there's your only justification for a nose ring. So there you go. 
I put a ring in your nose, earrings on your ears, and a crown of glory on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver, and your raiment was of fine linen and silk and embroidery. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. You became exceedingly beautiful as you waited and as you advanced to the kingdom. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I bestowed on you. This is a, de a declaration of the Lord of Adonai. So, so think about this. You're, you're married. You're, you're engaged to be married. Your bridegroom has left. He's creating the house. You're waiting for him to return. You're anticipating his return. And essentially, you are to keep yourself holy while you're waiting. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Look what he says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The bride who has said yes and has returned back to her former ways is going to be in for a rude awakening. The sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. That is what some of you, now notice this word, that is what you were. But you were washed you were made holy. You were set right in the name of the Lord Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, and by the Spirit of our God. See, God lays it out pretty darn clear. And you may think, well, that's so judgmental. You're so judgmental. I can't believe you would be that judgmental. I'm not judgmental. And here's the reason why. The only one who has the right to be judgmental is the judge. I'm not the judge. You're not the judge. God is the judge. If you don't like his standards, that's between you and him, but he's not going to change it because you don't like it and because I don't like it. He sets the standard. He has the right to judge according to the standard. We are just helpers to interpret and to see what the judge has written and what he has proclaimed and what he has said. So I'm going to ask you this question this morning, and we're almost done. We're going to wrap this up. The question is this. Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You used to be like this, but you were washed. You're not that anymore. You have been cleansed. You are now holy. You're now set right in the name of Yeshua. There are a lot of people who read that and they can't say I was, they have to say I am. So the question today becomes this, were you or are you? Because if you were, you're in a good, good position, a good standing. But if you are, that's a dangerous position to be. So how do I get clean? How do I, how do I make sure that I am cleansed? Well, you come to God today on this day and say, God, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Please make me new. Help me to start over today. I don't want to be that. I want to be a bride in waiting that is worthy of you, God. I don't want to be somebody who is corrupted. How awful would it be if you were in an engaged relationship 
and you found out that that person was unfaithful, you might again say, I, I can't do this. I'm done. Thankfully, like I said, God doesn't do that. Thankfully, if you come to him in repentance and genuineness, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm different. God, I want to be different. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be, that's, I don't want this to be who I am. I want it to be who I was. There's no shame in it being who I was, but there is shame in that being who I am today. God comes to cleanse. He comes to change. Now, while the bridegroom is away working on the house, the bride, what do we do as the bride? We are clamoring for his return. We, we just can't wait. We can't wait for him to come. That first song that we sang this morning, come, even so come, we're, we're waiting for our bridegroom to, to come. We want him to return. We want this to happen. We want this, this, this covenant to be entered into. We want to spend that eternity with him. We are clamoring for his return. We are longing for it. In Revelation chapter 22, it says these words, the spirit and the bride, we are the bride, say come. And let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes freely take the water of life. The one giving testimony to these things is Jesus saying, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Yeshua. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Yeshua be with you all. That's why Paul writes at the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, let those who do not love the Lord be cursed. That is the word anathema. May the curse fall upon you. And then he says, maranatha. And the word maranatha means this. It means the Lord has come. The Lord will come. The Lord is coming. That was, did you know that that was the greeting of the early church? They couldn't say shalom, which is the customary Jewish greeting. So instead they would say maranatha. Do you know that that's the cry of the bride? Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus. Come collect your bride. We're sick of this. We are ready for you to return. And that leads to the final thing really quickly, the collecting. This again is the ultimate end game. When the bridegroom is ready, he will come and collect his bride. Now, often in that day, a husband, a groom, would love to come in the middle of the night. They would come like a thief in the night. It was one of the parts of the, the things that would be fun for this boy to do. The girl would have to be ready. She would have to go to bed ready. She'd have to have plenty of oil in the lamp. And then the guy would come in the middle of the night, like a thief in the night. But there was a rule, and the rule was you can't just come and grab her out of bed. I mean, what if she has cold cream on her face? And, you know, it's, you, you got to give her a little bit of a warning. So the warning was this, okay, one from the wedding party would shout, and then the trumpet would sound, the shofar. And when the trumpet sounded, and when the shout was let out, all of the girls would wake up, and every girl across the community that was engaged would wonder, is this the one that's coming for me? Now, I don't know if you remember any of those, those words, but Jesus said in Revelation 16, behold, I am coming like a thief. How fortunate is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes on. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes, for you yourselves know this very well that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. Well, how will Jesus come? 
1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout. Remember, that's the beginning of the wedding party. Coming to collect my bride, so one in the wedding party shouts. He comes down with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, one in his wedding party, that is going to shout. And with the blast of the trumpet of God's shofar, and the dead in Messiah will rise first. That's God's, again, his ultimate end game. The ultimate thing that God wants to do is he is creating for himself a bride. Set apart, holy, having received Jesus by faith and then keeping ourselves holy and pure for the day of his return, committed to him, and if you've had any stumbles along the way, you go to him in repentance quickly and make sure you are right with him. It's not an excuse to sin, but it's an opportunity to get right with him. The Lord will come, he will collect his bride, and he will take his bride to be with him for eternity. One final verse, Revelation chapter 19, here's what it says. And John writes these words. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. A great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, or like the rumbling of powerful thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, which is Adonai, Elohei, Zavot, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, the kedoshim. Kedosh is the word holy. Kedoshim are the holy ones. Then the angel tells me, right, how fortunate, how, how fortunate, how blessed are the ones who have been invited to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. He also tells me, these are the true words of God. That's the end game. The end game is not the events that we're going to talk about starting next week. We're going to start looking at what Jesus himself said in Matthew 20, 20, really the end of 23, 24, and 25. Those are events. Daniel is the events. Revelation is the events. Ezekiel and Isaiah are events. That's not what God is focused on. God is focused on the wedding, the marriage. And through much turmoil and persecution, and suffering and tribulation, the bride will be made ready and the bride will be waiting and the bride will be anticipating and the bride will be crying out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, take us so that we can be a part of the marriage supper of the lamb. And the covenant relationship is entered into and it is never broken because it is binding it is permanent and it's enduring. That's the relationship we have. So as we wrap this up today, and you think of yourself in a couple of ways. One, am I part of the bride? Am I part of the community? 
You know how you become part of the bride in the community? You say, Jesus, I accept what you're offering. I accept your proposal. Do you know that every time you drink communion, it's a reminder that you have picked up the cup and you have said yes to Jesus. He hasn't finalized it. He won't drink it until it's all done, which means it's open for anyone who wants to receive him. You receive him by saying, Jesus, I'm sorry for my past. I'm sorry for the sin in my life. Jesus, I accept your relational, your covenant. I accept your offer. I pick up the cup. I drink of it, symbolically saying this, Jesus, I'm sorry. I accept you. I am yours now. And now you're pledged. Now you're part of his. You're part of the community. And now you're waiting for him to return to collect his bride. And in the meantime, while you're waiting, you say this, Jesus, I want to remain, whoops, holy and pure. I want to remain set apart without spot or wrinkle. I want that to be things in my past, not things in my present. No longer am I that way. I am different. If you haven't made those decisions or if you are willfully walking in sin today, where if the bridegroom returned today, you would say, uh-oh, not prepared, doing something I shouldn't be, walking in a way I shouldn't be, I'm impure, I am unholy, make this the opportunity and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I don't want to be that way, I want to be a holy bride set apart for you. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to pray today specifically for those in this room that have not become a part of the community of faith. They have not become a part of the bride because they have never said to you, Jesus, yes, I will receive what your proposal is. I will accept what you are offering. I will enter into a covenant relationship with you. So Jesus, if there are those among us today that haven't done that, make this the time where they just say simply in their own hearts, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my past. Jesus, I confess to you that I am dirty and that I am unclean and I am unworthy of you. But Jesus, please forgive me. Please, Jesus, come into my life and make me new. And I will be your follower. I will be your bride the rest of my life. Father, for those who are willing to do that, I pray, Father, that they would know that they are now yours, that they have eternity with you, that they can look forward to the coming of the bridegroom. Lord, for others in this room who have said yes, but now they are being and walking in unfaithfulness. Essentially, Lord, they are cheating on you. Just like you talked about Israel playing the harlot, Israel turning its back on you, Israel turning away from you. That's what we have done. And so, Lord, if there are any in this room today that say, you know what, I, I have been unfaithful to my, my groom. I have been unfaithful to the one that I am betrothed to. And Lord, I am sorry. And I repent. And I turn away. And I want to be walking with you in holiness and purity and blamelessness going forward. Help, myself, help me, Lord, to keep myself ready and anticipating and looking forward to your return. 
Father, your ultimate end game is not the events that we're going to see in those seven years. Your ultimate end game is collecting your bride. As Jesus said, where I am, there you may also be. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be ready. We thank you for our time together. We thank you for this incredible metaphor in your word. Help us, Lord, to be a radiant bride, a glorious bride, a bride in splendor as we wait for your coming. And so Maranatha, Lord, come soon, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks for listening to that message from Journey Church. Be sure to stop by our website, journeychurchgillette.com and check out past sermons and learn how to get plugged in with us. Also, if you would like to give to Journey to help us continue doing ministry in ways like this, just hit the give button on our website to support us on this mission. Hey, I hope that you have a great day and may God bless you.